I wonder if I might hunt for sherds in your garden. Sherds? Well, I have an archaeological interest. I'm a student of that in my own time. Old things generally. You're listening to Sherd's Podcast, a journey through the outskirts of literature. Urbana, August 20th, 1885. I had longed these years and years to be in Italy, to come face to face with the past. And was this Italy? Was this the past? I could have cried, yes, cried for disappointment when I first wandered about Rome, with an invitation to dine at the German embassy in my pocket, and three or four Berlin and Munich vandals at my heels, telling me where the best beer and sauerkraut could be had and what the last article by Grimm or Momsen was about. Is this folly? Is it falsehood? Am I not myself a product of modern northern civilization? Is not my coming to Italy due to this very modern scientific vandalism, which has given me a travelling scholarship because I have written a book like all those other atrocious books of erudition and art criticism? Nay, am I not here at Urbana on the express understanding that, in a certain number of months, I shall produce just another such book? Dost thou imagine, thou miserable Spiridion, thou pole grown into the semblance of a German pedant, doctor of philosophy, professor even, author of a prize essay on the despots of the 15th century, dost thou imagine that thou, with thy ministerial letters and proof-sheets in thy black professorial coat-pocket, canst ever come in spirit into the presence of the past. That was the opening passage of the story Amor Dur from Vernon Lee's collection of supernatural tales, Hauntings, which was originally published in 1890 and is now available in an annotated edition by Broadview Press. The book collects four of Vernon Lee's ghost stories, Amor Dur, Dianea, Oak of Oakhurst and A Wicked Voice, which together represent some of the finest examples of the genre and reflect Lee's deep engagement with Italian art her sensitivity to place, and her imaginative relationship with the vestigial, fragmentary manifestations of history. Join us over the next hour while we discuss this seductive masterpiece of supernatural fiction. We hope you enjoy the conversation. So welcome to episode 20 of Sherd's podcast. I'm joined today by Patricia Pullum, who is Professor of Victorian Literature at Surrey University. And you might remember her from our episode on Dorothy Scarborough's The Wind, episode 9 of Sherd's podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome, Sam. Nice to be asked back on. We're talking today about Vernon Lee's 
collection of supernatural tales, hauntings from 1890. You've published very widely on Vernon Lee, and I was interested in your first encounter with Lee's work and what drew you to it so strongly. Well, it's, yes, I encountered her first of all um, as an MA student. And uh, when I studied for my MA at uh, Queen Mary University of London, I studied uh, an 18th century MA. And I had the opportunity to take one module from one of the other MA courses that was running. And I was particularly attracted to a module on aestheticism run by Professor Catherine Maxwell at uh, Queen Mary. And I came across Vernon Lee there. I came across A Wicked Voice and I think it was Amor Dor at the time. And I was just overwhelmed by the quality of the writing. But also I thought as somebody who really, really loves ghost stories and had read a lot of them, I thought, how did I not come across this woman? How did I not experience um, these ghost stories at any stage in my life and I just thought they were absolutely wonderful both in terms of their atmosphere the language the style the ideas and I was just hooked really and it was at that point once I'd completed my MA I decided to pursue a PhD on Vernon Lee because I I realised that very little had been written about her at the time and I just thought that she really deserved far more critical attention than she'd received to date. And is that situation somewhat different today? Yes, absolutely. There's a whole new generation of Vernon Lee scholars. And in fact, in May, we're going to be holding a conference in Florence, Vernon Lee 2019. And many young scholars who have worked with Vernon Lee over the last, say, five to six years will be at that conference. And it's very exciting to see the the different range of work that's been done, not just on her fiction, but also on her aesthetics, on her historical writings, on her travel writings and particularly on musicology actually which I think is still a neglected area in terms of Lee studies. I have to say I've just been so impressed with these these stories. My relationship with Lee's writing is far more limited than yours of course but I've read the story from this collection A Wicked Voice many times now and it's actually a story that I read with my students where I'm teaching. Oh is it? It is yeah. Oh that's great. It's become a real favourite of mine, but it hasn't gone down quite so well with some of my students <laughs> who seem to find it who seem to find it quite daunting at first and somewhat impenetrable. And I think that that's at least partly to do with the density and the rich elusiveness of the stories. But I should say that at this point that the Broadview edition, which you edited along with Catherine Maxwell, was extremely helpful in, in this regard. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's very carefully annotated and traces all those references to art and Italian history and the general arcanum that informs Lee's stories. <laughs> Do you think that perhaps that's one of the challenges of reading Lee's stories? the density of the references yeah I no, absolutely I think I think it is I, th- I think that that elusiveness the material that she alludes to perhaps would have been familiar to a certain level of reader in her own period you know the circles in which she moved were a- educated circles so you can imagine that her readers would have recognized many of those references to history and to art and to aesthetics whereas I think that when we teach today because we don't we don't have sort of religion or, or 
uh, at the centre of our experience. We don't have art at the centre of our experience in quite the same way as more erudite circles of uh, the the late 19th century. That um, for students coming to this for the first time, it's a real challenge. It's very difficult to understand quite what the references are, quite why it might be so uh, important that, say, in a wicked voice, that 18th century music features so importantly and why there's this rejection of Wagner in in the tale for example so those things are things that I have to teach when I'm teaching a wicked voice I can't just assume that students will know that and I think once they do I think they really enjoy it despite the difficulty of the stories I was still utterly seduced by them and I feel I have to believe that they represent some of the finest supernatural tales of this period. I mean, they're certainly among the finest that I've ever read. I should add maybe that they're not particularly frightening exactly. Is that fair to say, do you think? Yes, no, I I think that's fair to say. It's more about atmosphere, isn't it? You get a sense of of, uh, unease, perhaps, but not really that kind of the frightening demons that you might find in something like M.R. James, for example. Or I suppose that's that kind of manifestation of the ghost that that means you harm in in quite the same way, even though many of the protagonists in her fiction do end up harmed or dead <laughs> as a result yeah. of these encounters so I think that that's true but I, but I also think that it's a kind of a very different kind of, of ghost story isn't it if you compare it to something like let's say M.R. James you know that they're, they're they're also written for a very kind of particular audience but I, I think without without wanting to denigrate James in any way because I, I love M.R. James I, I do think there's a kind of more simple trajectory to some of those stories than to Lee's and also that there's a question of familiarity you know um, James's stories have been adapted for TV people are familiar with them in, in a different kind of way whereas they're not familiar with with Vernon Lee's and I suppose that I would compare Lee's psychological supernatural most closely with someone like Henry James's Turn of the Screw for example something something along those lines or the Aspen Papers those kinds of texts I mean I don't know if that was your experience as well she certainly has a similar kind of restraint to henry james she tends to hold back slightly when you you feel that she's about to strike and leaves leaves things unsaid or maybe ends a story in a way that feels somewhat premature perhaps there's definitely an intentionality to that yes i was quite quite interested by I don't know if you've come across Sir Walter Scott's essay on imitations of the ancient ballad. And I found this little quotation in in a preface to Lafcadio Hearn's Some Chinese Ghosts of 1887. And and Scott Mm -hmm. writes, The supernatural, though appealing to certain powerful emotions very widely and deeply sown amongst the human race, is nevertheless a spring which is particularly apt to lose its elasticity by being too much pressed upon. Mm. And I really feel that this attitude seems to be something that Lee has taken to heart in her stories. Absolutely, and I think she, she writes about that, doesn't she, in her in her preface to Hauntings, mm. um, where she's very concerned to show that this isn't about the manifestations of ghosts you might find in um, in a seance, in a Victorian seance, for example. This isn't about, I think she refers to Jemima Jackson's aunt suddenly being manifested in some sort of um, seance as a kind of banal ghost who just sort of appears and says nothing very interesting. And she's she's more concerned with ambiguity 
ambiguity, uncertainty, a sort of indefinite ghost, one that is is really born out of our own psychological engagement with the past. That seems to me to, to be where she's coming from there. And it's something that she, I think, bears out in, in all of her supernatural fiction. One of the things that appealed to me most was the style of the writing. And there are moments in each of the stories when she moves to what you might call a a high style mm-hmm. particularly when she's writing about nature or landscape the, the writing just soars and becomes extremely evocative and, and very beautiful but she seems to have lots of different modes doesn't she 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 writes character extremely well she writes brilliantly about obsession and there's even a darkly comic edge to some of the tales so I wondered how you felt about her as a stylist well I think she's she's very interested in style and actually I think in a much later work called The Handling of Words she engages in what I would call sort of very detailed literary criticism and she actually examines other writers styles that's something that she she obviously is concerned with in her own writing but also that she likes to analyze in other people's writing I think in terms of her ghost stories I think she uses very much that kind of uh, jeweled ornamental style that you that you find in say Oscar Wilde's fairy stories but she also uses a kind of complex elusive style that you find in Walter Pater's the, the Renaissance and she combines those I think in her in her own writing it's it's very much a kind of decadent style that uses color in really interesting ways that uses mood in interesting ways too and that uses re- repetition in the writing to reinforce certain atmospheres or certain experiences in a wicked voice for instance the emphasis on sound the musicality to the phrasing some of which repeats very distinctly almost like a kind of light motif the sound of these plucked notes of a, of a mandoline and in Dianea perhaps there's also this continual reference to myrtle mm-hmm. and olive groves and so on just little images that keep repeating throughout yeah and to, and to doves you know that kind mm. those those symbols of Aphrodite you know mm. that, that, that are there and, and also now you know you get that sort of repeated description of Medea de Carpi as, as a, almost like a kind of vampiric figure you know with these with these eyes and lips that are sort of um, stretched tight and ready to bite and suck like a leech you know you so the, so these repetitions seem to build as they do in a, in a wicked voice almost into like a crescendo don't they and I think that's part of her handling of, of atmosphere and helps us to get this sense of foreboding as the stories progress even though sometimes that's not entirely borne out by the uh, ambiguous ending for example I mean a diner would be an example of that where you know you're not quite sure what's going to happen next. That is very notable as a quite a subtle way of operating for a writer just to plant these little seeds that will bloom later on in the story. Yeah and and, and I think also you know that it, it is she is very much a, a kind of contributor to decadent writing of that sort of 1880s 1890s I mean and you can you can see that in that focus on perfume, the perfume in, in, of the lilies in A Wicked Voice, for example, um, the rose in, in Amador. You know, you see these sort of allusions to or uses of the senses in various ways, whether that's sight, sound, you know, even perhaps taste in some instances, perhaps not in these stories, but but, but in some others. So, you know, th- those things, I think, are, are, are very much tributes to the kind of decadent writing that was in the ether at the time but also that she contributes to quite significantly I think 
So she seems like quite a remarkable woman. I'm really interested to hear something about her life, perhaps particularly how she came to be so erudite, what her upbringing was was like. So I wondered if you could tell us something about that. Um, yes, absolutely. I mean, although she's um, you know, she's a British writer. In in some ways, she she never really kind of lived in in England for any particular length of time. Although she was exiled here during the First World War. If I just perhaps give you a little bit of a rundown of her biography, then that might give you a little bit of a sort of an overview of how she comes to be the person she is. So she was born Violet Paget in 1856 near Boulogne-sur-Mer. During a writing career of about 53 years she published 43 major works that range from fiction, travel writing and drama to aesthetic treatises, literary critiques, art criticism, philosophy and history. So she's incredibly wide-ranging in her in her interests and I think this makes it even more surprising that not so much had been had been written about her certainly in the 1990s when I was um, working on her in the t- early 2000s but even today I think there's just it's such a rich vein to to mine her family were respectable though by no means rich by some people's standards and during Lee's childhood they traveled through Europe and they lived in France Germany and Switzerland and Italy before finally settling in Florence in 1873 and they moved into Lee's final home Villa Palmerino in Miano in 1889 and I think it's this family's nomadic lifestyle if you like that cultivated Lee's fluency in a number of European languages. So she wrote and read comfortably in French, Italian and German. And in fact, if you go to her library, which is reserved in the British Institute of Florence, then if you look at the books that she read, she always annotates them in the language in which she's reading them, which can present some some problems for, for scholars, I think. She's a kind of child prodigy. So by the age of 13, she'd published her first story, um, Les Aventures pièce de monnaie in a Swiss periodical and by the age of 19 she published a series of critical articles on women novelists and in an Italian, Italian periodical called La Revista Europea and in the 1870s she adopted this pseudonym Vernon Lee so that no one would really know whether her work was written by a, a man or, or a woman and that was the case when she came to public attention in 1880 with Studies of the 18th Century in Italy which was a, a highly acclaimed discussion of Italian literature, music and drama of the period and, and its place in European culture. Uh, in 1884, she publishes her first novel, Miss Brown, which satirised members of the artistic circles that she'd met in London in the early 1880s, uh, much to Henry James's consternation as she dedicated the, the novel to him. And in the 1880s, she publishes books on aesthetics, on history. And then in, 19, in 1890, she publishes what's probably become her first and most popular and enduring collection of supernatural stories, which is the one we're discussing today, called Haunting's Fantastic Tales. Then in the early 1900s, she becomes increasingly interested in psychological aesthetics, which explored aesthetic response through physical reactions and she published two important treatises on the subject first was Beauty and Ugliness from 1912 and then The Beautiful in, in 1913 and then at this time she also starts to become increasingly politically active so while she didn't support militant suffragism she certainly recognised the value of feminist thought and she writes about the economic dependence of women in one of her collections also as World War One loomed she penned several articles questioning the patriarchal 
fervour that was leading Britain towards conflict with Germany. This pacifist stance, I think, lost her many friends in Britain and uh, most British periodicals then refused to publish her political views. And I think it's at this point that Lee starts to get pushed out of any kind of literary limelight. When war broke out in 1914, she was actually in Britain and, as I mentioned earlier, she was exiled here for, for quite a while. She was unable to return to her home in Italy and she became increasingly alarmed by the escalating violence in Europe and she joined an important pacifist group called the Union for Democratic Control. So although she was British by birth, if you like, Lee's experience of life in Europe made her a cosmopolitan and uh, her pacifism was underscored by what she she referred to as her kind of uh, empathy and her belief in the value of mutual respect among nations. And in fact, the war prompted Lee to write uh, a really sort of significant work, which has started to receive a bit more attention actually recently, called The Ballet of the Nations, which is a visceral anti-war allegory she published in Christmas 1950. And then later she includes this and, and also her, med- uh, her philosophical meditations on the war in a book called Satan the Waster, which was published in 1920. And this includes really a discussion of what she sees as the dangers of group emotion, which she sees as supporting nationalist agendas. So in some ways, I think Lee's very pertinent for our times, particularly her writing about World War One. Towards the end of her life, she then publishes two more significant books, one called Pro or The Future of Intelligence in 1925, a a book that's quite poignant that it considers a future she's never going to experience. And then uh, also an important study for musicologists called Music and Its Lovers in 1932, which looks at, um, it's a kind of a study of imaginative responses to music. And then she dies three years later at Il Palmarino on the 13th of February 1935. So that's a kind of condensed (laughs) biography of Vernon Lee. It's quite hard not to include a a lot of her other material, but I, I think at least it's a starting point if anyone's interested. I just wanted to ask, well, two things, I suppose. You said that she lost lots of friends and allies at a certain point when her pacifism took root. And I was wondering if that had eventually contributed to her obscurity somewhat. I mean, even following her death and and later on before her rediscovery i think it did because if you consider that very few periodicals would actually publish her her work during that period you know it became quite difficult for her to make her her voice heard publicly at that point so she'd gone from being you know very much a kind of I suppose a sage, someone who is very much kind of public intellectual of the of the time, and unusually for a woman, if you if you like, at that time, to suddenly being at odds with a culture in which she existed. So being in Britain, but also having an affinity with Germans and understanding how, for example, German mothers might feel about losing their children, and trying to say, you know, surely British women who are losing their sons must understand how German mothers losing their sons must feel. Which is something she talks about in Satan the Waster it's it's very hard at those in those moments when that jingoistic atmosphere of World War One where you know the, the Germans are the enemies for that voice to to be heard and even in the aftermath of the war because it was very soon after if you think about sort of 1920 you know as as the point at which Satan the Waster comes out it hits the wrong note I suppose for many but I think that from her perspective and if you try to inhabit her experience of 
of life. You know, she'd lived her, all her life in Europe. She'd she'd lived in uh, and experienced Germany. She'd you know she'd engaged with German thought and uh, an aesthetic. She was so she, for her to suddenly be told that these people are her en- enemies and that she must now ignore everything that's good about them because we're at war about them and and invest in this group emotion. She just refused that, and I think that unfortunately that was the start. But I think also she suffered as so many Victorians perhaps did from you know modernist writers who then rejected their precursors if you like you know that decision to make it new was to reject what was considered the old but if you Mm. think that Vernon Lee was writing right through till 1932 then she straddles that kind of Victorian and modernist period and and I sometimes think that say for example people like Virginia Woolf you know something like Orlando resonates to me with some of the sexual ambiguities that you find in Vernon Lee's supernatural fiction and and Wolf actually knew Lee for example um, and knew her works and even though she was quite sort of dismissive of her I think she refers to her as a garrulous baby at that one point <laughs> Um, it's not it's not the best put down no no, not the best the best description but uh but I think that Vernon that actually Virginia Woolf probably owes Vernon Lee something and I'm sure it's something that Lee's scholars and uh, Woolf scholars will explore as time goes on so her first publication at the age of 13 was it yep was written in French yes I'm I'm wondering (laughs) why she chose to write in English particularly is there any record of why she did that or is it very much her first language or um I, I should imagine that it was uh in, in some ways it was obviously it was a language of her of her parents and um and certainly her mother who was one of the most influential sort of figures in in her life I mean certainly Matilda Paget sounds like a force to be reckoned with and she was very keen to ensure that her daughter you know was very highly educated educated and had high expectations of her and I think it's to uh, Matilda Paget that um, that Vernon Lee owes a lot of her knowledge of the 18th century and particularly 18th century music for example there are sort of uh, mentions in various locations of Vernon Lee listening to her mother playing 18th century music on, on the piano but also her brother or half-brother Eugene Lee Hamilton was extremely influential on, on, in terms of her education and there are these these interesting letters to Eugene, who was a, a scholar and then a, a diplomat for a while before he succumbed to some kind of mysterious illness and became an, a, an invalid. And there are these letters between the child, Vernon Lee, to her old brother, and, and uh, Eugene then sends them back corrected, you know, correcting her grammar and expression. Mm. Um, so he was very much, uh, and, and recommending things that she should read, recommending things to his mother that Vernon Lee should read. So I think that his mother, her mother and uh, brother Eugene Lee Hamilton were both kind of very keen to foster this kind of intellectual life in Vernon Lee. I feel quite shaken at what has just happened. I am beginning to fear that that old pedant was right in saying that it was bad for me to live all alone in a strange country, that it would make me morbid. It is ridiculous that I should be put into such a state of excitement merely by the chance discovery of a portrait of a woman dead these three hundred years. With the case of my uncle Ladislas and other suspicions of insanity in my family, I ought really to guard against such foolish excitement. Yet the incident was really dramatic, uncanny. 
I could have sworn that I knew every picture in the palace here, and particularly every picture of her. Anyhow, this morning as I was leaving the archives, I passed through one of the many small rooms, irregular shaped closets, which fill up the ins and outs of this curious palace, turreted like a French chateau. I must have passed through that closet before, for the view was so familiar out of its window. Just the particular bit of round tower in front, the cypress on the other side of the ravine, the belfry beyond, and the piece of the line of Monte Sant'Agata and the Leonessa, covered with snow against the sky. I suppose there must be twin rooms, and that I'd got into the wrong one, or rather, perhaps some shutter had been opened or curtain withdrawn. As I was passing, my eye was caught by a very beautiful old mirror frame let into the brown and yellow inlaid wall. I approached, and looking at the frame looked also mechanically into the glass. I gave a great start and almost shrieked, I do believe. It's lucky that the Munich professor is safe out of Urbania. Behind my own image stood another, a figure close to my shoulder, a face close to mine. And that figure, that face, hers, Medea de Carpi's. I turned sharp round, as white, I think, as the ghost I expected to see. On the wall, opposite the mirror, just a pace or two behind where I had been standing, hung a portrait. And such a portrait. Bronzino never painted a grander one. Against a background of harsh, dark blue, there stands out the figure of the Duchess. For it is Medea, the real Medea, a thousand times more real, individual, and powerful than in the other portraits. Seated stiffly in a high-backed chair, sustained as it were, almost rigid by the stiff brocade of skirts and stomacher, stiffer for plaques of embroidered silver flowers and rows of seed pearl. The dress is, with its mixture of silver and pearl, of a strange dull red, a wicked poppy-juice colour against which the flesh of the long narrow hands with fringe-like fingers, of the long slender neck and the face with bared forehead looks white and hard like alabaster. The face is the same as in the other portraits, the same rounded forehead with the fleece-like yellowish-red curls, the same beautifully curved eyebrows just barely marked, the same eyelids a little tight across the eyes, the same lips a little tight across the mouth, but with a purity of line, a dazzling splendour of skin, and intensity of look immeasurably superior to all the other portraits. She looks out of the frame with a cold level glance, yet the lips smile. One hand holds a dull red rose, the other long, narrow, tapering, plays with a thick rope of silk and gold and jewels hanging from the waist round the throat, white as marble, partially confined in the tight, dull red bodice, hangs a gold collar, with a device on alternate enameled medallions. Amour dur, dur amour. For Lee, the supernatural seems to be very deeply tied up with 
history in each of these stories in in hauntings there's something malevolent about the past which either seems to come forth into the present somehow or lures its protagonists into itself and it seems to be something that she was very conscious of she writes explicitly about it in the preface to to the book and she compares her own concerns to those of the modern ghost experts as she calls them referring to the recently established society for psychical research and describe something different to a, to a scientific approach i think for her it's she's just far more interested in the imagination isn't she i think that's that's what comes across both in this preface and also in an essay on faust and helena and the supernatural in, in art i mean she's really interested in how we ourselves are prompted prompted to experience uh, the ghostly through our own engagements with the past so she thinks about the kind of half known or half perceived aura of past lives of historical historical spaces and I think we see that in her in her ghost stories um, emerging through things like paintings sculptures old houses old music locations that are heavy with history in some way like Venice but also I think we see that emerging in, in her travel writing which are themselves I suppose a sort of spectral quality to her descriptions of, of historical landscapes and I, I think this this emerges in her partly through her own self-awareness of how she herself in engages with fragments the fragments that she reads the fragments that she experiences and she she refers to this as almost like a, a lumber room of fragments and artifacts that that then seem to be drawn on to uh, result in this kind of unsettling imaginative journey that that we experience in her fiction so you know you see that in a number of her works I and mean, obviously you see it in a wicked voice but we also see it in a tale that precedes a wicked voice a culture ghost or winthrop's adventure which focuses on a, a, a poor portrait that's found we see it also in, a, in another story called the image which is also known as as the doll where again it's this discovery of a of a sort of stuffed doll like figure in a in a lumber room that that seems to then inspire this engagement with a, with the past and also she refers to the 18th century world in in one of her texts as a kind of remote lumber room full of discarded mysteries and of lurking ghosts so so the image of the lumber room the attic full of fragments of the past emerges over and over again and and she's she's she doesn't really want to create a kind of embodiment of of, of the past it's almost like we're privy to fragments and tiny moments of, of experience with that past in her supernatural fiction. You know, we get glimpses of the figure in A Wicked Voice. We get fragments of music that are played in, in A Wicked Voice that recall something or, or create our needs. And I think that that works right the way through. But I think there's also this a very important person in, in Vernon Lee's life, I think, was Mary Singer Sargent. So John Singer Sargent, the artist's mother, who introduced Lee to Rome and the past the Pagets and the sergeants became very friendly at one point when, when Lee was in her, her early teens and uh, I think the, that experience of for example Rome of the Vatican of opera uh, all those things seem to inform her responses to aesthetics but also merge in this kind of imaginative engagement in her in her literature a really interesting essay called The Child in the Vatican which um appears in a book called Belcaro from 1881. She talks about her first experience of going to the Vatican and how she was really kind of alienated by these statues, galleries, these long galleries of cold uh, statues. But in this in this essay, she invents what she calls a, a fairy tale in which a, a young child becomes 
almost like the toy of the statue demons that lie in the palace corridors. And um, she says that he kind of cast a spell over the child. And she says, um, which I just think is it's a really lovely moment, she says, um, when she experienced in St. Peter's the quavering notes of singers, the shrill blasts of the trumpets and the white splendour of the pontifical robes and jewels, um, she writes that to the child, that moment, from that moment, everything seemed changed. I was wild to be taken to those dark, damp little churches full of long, sweet, tearful, almost infantile notes of vo- voices whose strange sweetness seemed to cut into your soul, only to pour into the wound some mysterious narcotic balm. I was wild to be taken to the chilly galleries where all the, those gods, all those goddesses and nymphs and heroes, all that nude and white and ice-cold world, seemed to seek me with their blank white glance smiling with the faint and ironical smile which means this creature is ours i mean it's both chilling and beautiful (laughs) at the same the same time which which very much seems to me to to be what she manages to create in her her supernatural fiction as well you know it's both Mm. beautiful and and chilling and somehow completely possessed by art and history that's one of the very interesting things for me when you talk about the fragmentary nature of the past it's not quite the impression that i get i feel that you're talking about these particular objects through which the past enters almost like through a portal or something like Mm. that but there is always a real specificity to it Mm. and that's and that the beauty almost comes from that specificity i think Mm. just as that description couldn't have occurred anywhere else so it is with with each period of the past and each place in each of these stories that that is dealt with but maybe we could think about that fragmentary nature almost in this sort of jamesian mode where that is to say mr james uh, in mm. terms of the almost like the antiquarian ghost story mm. there's the idea of someone almost piecing together the past mm. in each of these stories that's a particular the case in Amour Dur yes I was going to say that because that's that's where you do have uh, someone who is actually a scholar and historian isn't he as as you'd find in M.R. James but you know we should we should uh, make it clear that she's writing this before M.R. MR yes. James yes absolutely <laughs> I was wondering if we could think about that story as um, this is a bold claim but perhaps kind of pioneering the antiquarian ghost story I mean if you, mm. if you think about the characteristics you have in there you have the scholarly protagonist who looks into some arcane matter perhaps too deeply and against his better judgment we have Mm. the library the emphasis on a particular location figure from history that continues to exert some kind of maleficent force in the present and any of those things could be found in these typical antiquarian ghost stories of mr james like the rose garden Mm. which is a real favorite of mine and the ash tree and a warning to the curious yeah but i wonder if this does this already have a history of sorts or do you think that she's actually bringing something new to the genre i think that in a way she's inspired greatly by for example uh walter pater's studies in the history of the renaissance i think that's one of the things that you uh, you see coming through in in the ghost stories that look to both the the antique past but also thinking about the so the hellenistic past that you find in something like dianaire but you find it in in amador particularly that focus on renaissance renaissance art 
art, for example. And in, in Amodou, you have this, I suppose, this, this scholar who's, who's clearly sort of coming to it much later, but is just overwhelmed by the strangeness and, and beauty of this, this particular figure, Medea de Carpi. And of course, Medea de Carpi's description, the description of Amodou d'Amour on the lozenges on her chain, actually exists on a portrait by Agnolo Bronzino, which is uh, of Lucrezia Panciatici, which is in the Uffizi. So if you go and see that in the Tribune in the Uffizi and you look close up, you can see that that she's actually wearing a chain that says Amor Duram Ur. So it has its kind of basis in a in an artifact, in a, a both in an artistic object, but also um, it's kind of eliciting this whole idea of a sort of mysterious, fragmented past that you can access but will always overwhelm you. And I and I think that's very much something that that she I, I would say. I mean, I'm, I'm going to go so if I'm going to stick my neck out and say I think she almost invents that idea of being overwhelmed in that way by the objects of the past I think or certainly reinvents it in a really interesting way in the in the decadent context yeah that's that's really interesting because we do see shades of various other writers in in her work I think I found distinct similarities personally from from my perspective to Nathaniel Hawthorne's The House of the Seven Gables Mm, yeah. In Oak of Oakhurst, but particularly in reference to this family curse that seems to continually exert force um, into the present. And there is even a portrait of an old judge of the Pynchon family, mm. an evil old judge that hangs within the house, casting this awesome gaze over everything. And there's also a hint of Sheridan Le Fanu's Carmilla, I think, in the use of this portrait of Mircala which so keenly resembles Carmilla in precisely the same way that there's this suggestion that Alice Oak in Oak of Oakhurst is perhaps the same figure as the one seen in the portrait. Yeah, no, I, I can I can see those those connections, and I I think they're they're really interesting, and and um, particularly I mean I think Vernon Lee was was certainly a, a fan of Hawthorne's The Marble Fawn. Um, she she loved that novel, um, so she would have certainly been well aware of of, of Hawthorne's own writings. And I suppose if we think about something like um, Rappuccini's Daughter as well, that kind of idea of sort of the Italian sort of Renaissance as a, as a sort of poisonous dangerous location you can see elements of that can't you as, as well I suppose that it's in its sustained nature in, in a collection like hauntings that's particularly noticeable it's I mean when you read the the collection as a whole it, it does feel quite overwhelming doesn't it I mean I don't know if you've read it all in one go or I did yeah yeah you you're swept away into the past yeah. essentially by reading it, this. It's, it's immersive isn't it it's an immersive it experience so I think whereas uh you know you do you do find that here and there I think there's something about I think I think they because of the repetitions as well I think they start to take on almost, almost a kind of incantatory quality almost like you are spellbound by these stories that they yeah. sort of lull you I mean as I said at the beginning they they are seductive mm. these stories seduced me entirely they work a kind of magic over the reader it's it's quite remarkable well, I think I think that seductive is a really good good word to use because, in fact, seduction is very much at the heart of each of the stories in some way too. It is, yeah, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. December twentieth. I have been again. I have heard the music. I have been inside the church. I have seen her. 
I can no longer doubt my senses. Why should I? Those pedants say that the dead are dead, the past is past. For them, yes, but why for me? Why for a man who loves, who is consumed with the love of a woman? A woman who, indeed, yes, let me finish the sentence. Why should there not be ghosts to such as can see them? Why should she not return to the earth if she knows that it contains a man who thinks of, desires only her? A hallucination. Why, I saw her as I see this paper that I write upon, standing there in the full blaze of the altar. Why, I heard the rustle of her skirts. I smelt the scent of her hair. I raised the curtain which was shaking from her touch. Again I missed her. But this time, as I rushed out into the empty moonlit street, I found upon the church steps a rose. The rose which I had seen in her hand the moment before. I felt it, smelt it. A rose, a real living rose, dark red and only just plucked. I put it into water when I returned after having kissed it who knows how many times. I placed it on top of the cupboard. I determined not to look at it for twenty-four hours lest it should be a delusion. But I must see it again. I must. Good heavens, this is horrible, horrible. If I had found a skeleton it could not have been worse. The rose which last night seemed freshly plucked, full of colour and perfume, is brown, dry. A thing kept for centuries between the leaves of a book. It has crumbled into dust between my fingers. Horrible. Horrible. But why so, pray? Did I not know that I was in love with a woman dead three hundred years? If I wanted fresh roses which bloomed yesterday, the Countess Fiametta or any little sempstress in Urbania might have given them to me. What if the rose has fallen to dust? If only I could hold Medea in my arms as I held it in my fingers, kiss her lips as I kissed its petals. Should I not be satisfied if she too were to fall to dust the next moment, and if I were to fall to dust myself? You mentioned to me that you feel there is perhaps a possible feminist reading of these texts, which is perhaps not quite so obvious on first reading, given the way that women seem to be demonised throughout it. Yeah, I mean, I I think they're demonised. But what I think is really interesting is the way that they um, refuse to be captured in some way. So if you if you think about um, the way in which uh, Medea de Carpi is you know, captured in, in paintings, in the miniature, in the sculpture of her, and yet, you know, she exceeds that. And, and because it's left un- ambiguous, we're not sure whether it's actually just <clears throat> Spiridion Trepka's imagination that sort of re-embodies her or whether she is actually a kind of a, a ghost but there's something that that exceeds the the frame that she can't actually be framed as this figure of the past that there's a kind of constant questioning of that figure you know is she really that demonized figure or is she something else and I think that's certainly something that we could consider in relation to someone like say Lucrezia Borgia where you know the the history that's come down to us of her as a poisoner and uh, a dangerous woman is is really something that's been born out of kind of male histories and and uh, and so 
you know, now that is questioned, you know, was she actually somebody who was a kind of murderess or was she a victim caught up in very difficult circumstances? So there's that ambiguity, I think, in Amador. Unlike in something like Robert Browning's My Last Duchess, where this male speaker of the dramatic monologue fully controls both the reader and and his sort of captive audience as well as having framed and caged this woman you're saying that the figure in Amodur has a kind of agency that the figure in My Last Duchess doesn't have Oh, absolutely. Um, And as I say, you know, that's left ambiguous. We can't say for definite that she has because we don't know that agency emerges out of Spirian Trekker's kind of reconstruction of her, if you like, Mm. um, and her ghostly visitations. But that ambiguity leaves a space for that reading if you you want to read it in in that way. And I think that we see the same with Oak of Oakhurst, you know, this artist who comes to Oakhurst to capture, you know, William and uh, images of William and Alice Oak. he finds it impossible to capture her, to capture Alice Oak's image. He's he's found wanting. And I think if we look at a wicked voice, we have a similar thing there because Magnus finds himself haunted by the, the figure of Safarino, which again is a sexually ambiguous figure, um, but certainly feminized. You know, he refers first to Safarino looking uh, or having a face like the faces of um, of the dangerous women of Swinburne and Baudelaire. So, you know, that idea of the femme fatale is, uh, is embodied in this omfatal who uh, eludes Magnus in, in, in some way and who overwhelms him. He's, he's haunted by that 18th century voice. And then in Dionair, again, the same sort of situation where Valdemar can't capture Dionair in sculpture. He can't sculpt her. He can't succeed. He, he is also frustrated. So there's kind of a sense of these frustrated historians, frustrated artists who just cannot capture these women mm. um, or these feminized figures, no matter what they what they do. So I think you could, I mean, I'm not saying you definitely can, because the ambiguity always allows that sort of space for both readings. But I think you could certainly read it from a feminist perspective if you if you wanted to do that. There's always a kind of emasculation in each of these male figures, the male protagonists of each story. Absolutely, and I, and I think it's kind of, even though Safarino, for example, is never referred to explicitly as a castrato, it's very clear that he is a castrato, and yet he's the person who castrates Magnus, the contemporary composer. So there's something really interesting going on there too. They have been congratulating me again today upon being the only composer of our days, of these days of deafening orchestral effects and poetical quackery, who has despised the newfangled nonsense of Wagner and returned boldly to the traditions of Handel and Gluck and the divine Mozart, to the supremacy of melody and the respect of the human voice. O cursed human voice, Violin of flesh and blood, fashioned with the subtle tools the cunning hands of Satan. O execrable art of singing, have you not wrought mischief enough in the past, degrading so much noble genius, corrupting the purity of Mozart, reducing Handel to a writer of high-class singing exercises, and defrauding the world of the only inspiration worthy of Sophocles and Euripides, the poetry of the great poet Gluck? Is it not enough to have dishonoured a whole century in idolatry of that wicked and contemptible wretch, the singer, without persecuting an obscure young composer of our days, 
whose only wealth is his love of nobility in art, and perhaps some few grains of genius. This ties in quite well, I suppose, with Lee's ideas specifically about art and the supernatural, which she sees as intimately related, but in some sense incompatible. And this has to do with the kinds of definitions, perhaps, the the kinds of attempts to capture something that each of these male protagonists are uh, involved in. Mm. Maybe I'll just read this little quotation from Faustus and Helena notes on the supernatural in art her 1880 essay it's quite a long quotation but i think it's worth it (laughs) she says what are the relations between art and the supernatural at first sight the two appear closely allied like the supernatural art is born of imagination the supernatural like art conjures up unreal visions the two have been intimately connected during the great ages of the supernatural when instead of existing merely in a few disputed traditional dogmas and in a little discredited traditional folklore, it constituted the whole of religion and a great part of philosophy. In reality, the hostility between the supernatural and the artistic is well nigh as great as the hostility between the supernatural and the logical. Critical reason is a solvent. It reduces the phantoms of the imagination to their most prosaic elements. Artistic power, on the other hand, moulds and solidifies them into distinct and palpable forms. The synthetical definiteness of art is as sceptical as the analytical definiteness of logic. For the supernatural is necessarily essentially vague, and art is necessarily essentially distinct. Give shape to the vague, and it ceases to exist. And if we think about that in terms of what is going on in the stories, where it's precisely that inability of each of these protagonists to give shape or form or logic to Mm. their antagonists let's say that's where the horror comes from that's where the fear comes from very clearly i think although in some cases i think it's far more complex than that but would you say that's broadly true i think i think that's broadly true and and i think that's why she kind of feels that art and supernatural just incompatible in in some way doesn't she because she sort of says that art requires definition and form whereas the supernatural kind of requires ambiguity and, and formlessness to be entirely effective but I think that she then you know she uses her her ability to create that ambiguity and that kind of frustration of completion that you find in in these tales to create that kind of supernatural effect and I think it, it works quite effectively it's very effectively done but I think that in the particular case of a wicked voice it becomes slightly more convoluted perhaps when we think about the kind of music the kind of music that magnus is making and the kind of music that zaffarino is is making yeah i I would agree because it's the 18th century it's a formalism of the 18th century music that ultimately succeeds doesn't it yeah, precisely. I mean, I suppose I should add that what Vernon Lee seems to be talking about there in relation to the supernatural and, and art seemed to me, anyway, very strongly informed by Nietzsche and um, mm. the birth of tragedy, this distinction between Apollonian and, and uh, Dionysian. You know, Apollonian as representative of logic form and harmony and the Dionysian as representative of chaos and formlessness and instinct and so on. No, I'd entirely agree and, and, and I and I think that that for me was what really drew me um when I was when I was working on, on, on her, um drew, drew me to kind of look at the way in which 
in her writings on aesthetics, there was this constant pull to form, to clarity, to line, you know. And yet, in her short stories, quite quite often, there's this tendency to, towards dissolution, a kind of celebration of dissolution, in 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 a way, in in most of the texts. And uh, and I suppose you know, a wicked voice is is complex in that way because it's uh, as we said, you know, the the formalism of 18th century music is what's successful. But it has, in some way, cut through and dissolved the power of Wagnerian music in Magnus's creative context. I suppose we should we should say Magnus is a Norwegian composer living in Venice, and he is clearly a composer of the Wagnerian mode. And Wagner who is is someone who's subverting musical conventions and, and classical harmony and you know, famously that's, that's perhaps most evident in his uh, very well known opening f- phrases from, from the opera Tristan and Isolde, the so called Tristan chord. And it's decidedly uh, a form of music that's less interested in resolutions and traditional cadences and more interested in ambiguity suspension and and the lack of resolution i'd like to maybe include this little clip of antonio papano the italian english conductor and pianist talking about the the tristan chord to give you an idea of what i'm talking about mentioned the tristan chord um that wagner didn't invent um chopin used it uh, beethoven used it bach used it, but it's what Wagner does with this chord. The chord itself is this, which, when you listen to it, creates, there's a certain, uh, there's almost a letting out of air when that chord hits. It's the depression. But What's important about that chord, which, I mean, I can talk to you about French sixth and subdominant and dominant. None of that's for tonight. None of that's relevant. What's important to know is that it's introduced by a figure that is a big skip, which creates... It's so long and finally resolves to something that is ambiguous it's not an arrival it's it's something that makes you feel a little bit off balance it then resolves to something equally hanging in the air now what i mean by that is the melody in itself an extra bit of melody comes in on the oboe and that resolves that resolves but the chords underneath it depress and don't resolve and suggest a key maybe maybe that but no I'll play it again Also, the importance of this chord, the silence after it, which seems an eternity. 
That's what I call modern music. And in contrast, the music by which Magnus is haunted, this this voice distinctly from the 18th century, is sort of dismissively referred to as singing exercises, and it's replete with flourishes and ornaments, but very much within the mould of classical harmony. I suppose I can also in- include a, a clip of something that was originally sung by Farinelli to, to give you an idea of what, what that sounds like. It does seem to me that Lee almost subverts her own theories about the supernatural in order to create a new kind of haunting in this story, one where the ghost itself becomes the conservative element. Conservative form imposes itself upon a narrator who is trying to break away away from it. Well, I'd, I'd agree, but I think what's interesting is that because I, I think you're right in terms of the formalism of, of, of uh, 18th century music, I, but I think what's interesting is that here the ambiguity is on, almost like displaced onto a, a kind of sexual ambiguity yeah, um, yeah. isn't it because uh, you have this figure as I say she never actually mentioned explicitly that this figure is a castrato but the descriptions of the of the voice very much suggest that don't they yeah it certainly has a real ambiguity to it doesn't it she writes there were long drawn out notes of intense but peculiar sweetness a man's voice which had much of a woman's but more even of a chorister's but a chorister's voice without its limpidity and innocence. Its youthfulness was veiled, muffled, as it were, in a sort of downy vagueness, as if a passion of tears withheld. Yeah, absolutely, the ambiguity seems to be placed very specifically within within the voice yeah I, th- I think it, the the ambiguities in in the voice and and also i mean it's um it's really interesting like in, a, in her introduction to a, a later collection called four morris five unlikely stories which includes a culture ghost with winthrop's adventure which is a, a related story to this she talks about the sort of inspiration for both that and 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 also clearly for a wicked voice um, when she visits a, m- a music school in Bologna with uh, John Singer Sargent and she sees this amazing portrait of, of Farinelli and, and she, she says I mean I just want to quote the little sort of section from here she says a mysterious uncanny a wizard serpents serpent sphinx strange weird curious such were the adjectives the comparisons with which we capped each other my friend John and I as we lingered and fantasticated in front of that smoky canvas in an ill-lit lumber room the lumber room again in the Bologna music school at closing hour on autumn afternoons of the year 1872 so I, I think that 
this this really kind of that idea of the mysterious the uncanny the serpentine the sphinx it's, it's all this kind of ambiguity that is uh, that emerges out of just seeing that portrait of the castrato figure mm. and that then becomes incorporated in into that uh, in a wicked voice but also because i think the the fact that she never actually explicitly says it's a castrato is also fascinating because it leaves it in abeyance we're not we're not sure. We can only guess. Mm. But then if you think that this castrato voice is overwhelming Magnus and is seducing Magnus, then this figure is it's almost like, a, you could argue it's an example of sort of same-sex desire, you know, that this male, kind of effeminate male figure is, is seducing uh, Magnus through his voice and through the music. That's really interesting because in the dream that he has, we get a description of Zaffarino's voice as he's singing for a woman and she is killed as a re- result of this. But the description is evidently that of a of a ravished woman, right? Mm. It's described this way, a woman lying on the ground surrounded by other women, her blonde hair tangled full of diamond sparkles which cut through the half-darkness, was hanging dishevelled. The laces of her bodice had been cut, and her white breast shone among the sheen of jewelled brocade. Her face was bent forward, and a thin white arm trailed like a broken limb across the knees of one of the women who were endeavouring to lift her. Mm. So even if he is seduced, well, it certainly shows that he thinks of the voice in these particularly sexual terms, and and mm. in, in terms of sexual violence, in a, in a way, absolutely. And you, and if you think about the the light motif descriptions of the of the voice, you know, you get the idea of the the voice swelling and swelling and rending asunder that downy vo- veil which wrapped it, and you know, leaping forth clear, resplendent like the sharp and glittering blade of a knife that seemed to enter deep into my breast. You know, that mm. that kind of penetrative voice. That kind of motif of sort of swelling, of a penetration, is is something that is repeated yeah. every time the voice is described. So it's very hard not to make those connections, isn't it, between the sexual violation and the penetrative quality of Safarino's voice. It is so masterfully done, I think. The descriptions of this voice, and particularly the way that she manages to mirror or, or reflect particular musical phrasing in those descriptions so the language becomes at times almost like pizzicato or staccato and then Mm. these long flowing phrases evoke the swelling legato of the voice and just in general the attention to sound Mm. you know at these moments of intensity when magnus for instance orders the gondolier to take him to san marco where he knows there will be lots of people and street singers and we get this amazing cacophonous passage with the clattering of cutlery and footsteps and the crowd and so on. All of it is described with this really acute attention to the sound of everything. Little by little, I began to perceive sounds. Little sharp, metallic, detached notes, like those of a mandoline. And there was united to them a voice, very low and sweet, almost a whisper, which grew and grew and grew until the whole place was filled with that exquisite vibrating note of a strange, exotic, unique quality. The note went on swelling and swelling. Suddenly there was a horrible piercing shriek and the thud of a body on the floor and all manner of smothered exclamations. There, 
close by the canopy, a light suddenly appeared, and I could see, among the dark figures moving to and fro in the room, a woman lying on the ground, surrounded by other women. Her blonde hair, tangled, full of diamond sparkles which cut through the half-darkness, was hanging dishevelled. The laces of her bodice had been cut, and her white breast shone among the sheen of jeweled brocade. Her face was bent forwards, and a thin white arm trailed like a broken limb across the knees of one of the women who were endeavouring to lift her. There was a sudden splash of water against the floor, more confused exclamations, a hoarse, broken moan, and a gurgling, dreadful sound. I awoke with a start, and rushed to the window. I suppose the really interesting thing is that for Magnus, it's, it's not a moment of being overwhelmed sexually. It's something that actually remains with him. And what it does is to steal away his artistic ambitions and his artistry, and particularly mm. his ambition to move forward with new harmonic forms so that he's actually become a composer in the mode of the 18th century and is lauded for doing so but he despises this yeah which is why i think what i was saying about this conservative force of the earlier music overwhelming the sort of formlessness of wagnerian style mm. it does eventually apply in that way even though the ambiguity comes from the voice there is the ultimate success of these older forms i think oh well, absolutely and I, and I think you know he, he himself becomes a kind of a castrato doesn't he? he's castrated yeah. he's, an, uh, he's a castrated composer because he can't complete his uh, wagnerian opera ogier the Ogier the Dane, which is what he sets out to write when he goes to, to Venice. So, so I think you're absolutely right. Um, it's almost as if the lure of the 18th century is too strong for Lee here, isn't it? It, mm. it, it, it can't be about the dissolution of form here. It's, a, it's about the imposition of or uh, seduction of the, of the 18th century form and entrapment of the 18th century form, which is important. Would it, would it be fair to say that in, in terms of aesthetics, she is something of a conservative herself yes I, I, w I would say so I, I, although I do think that changes o over time because I think um, I mentioned psychological aesthetics earlier and I, I think that's something that becomes very important to sort of ex experimenting with the experience of form the kind of physiological experience of form is something that she explores she had two sort of important female friendships in, in her life romantic friendships one was with Mary Robinson early on and the second was with Clementina Anstruther Thompson who was an artist and it's with Clementina Anstruther Thompson that she explores, um, she goes to galleries and actually ex tries to experience what artworks make her feel and she writes down Kit as she called her Kit's kind of experiences of sculptures for example what did it make her feel when she looked at a sculpture of Venus or what did it make her feel when she looked at uh, a particular art object or painting you know thinking about breathing thinking about those sort of physiological responses mm. to art so in fact she became increasingly experimental uh, in terms of her aesthetics and that's something that is receiving quite a lot of of uh, attention now um, particularly um, Carolyn Burdett who's Dr Carolyn Burdett who's at um, Birkbeck University she's written on this in, in really interesting ways and I think that there will be more work done on this aspect of her aesthetics in, in due course. Oh, that's fascinating. So I think we've got early Lee here. Okay yeah because in my experience reading her book Laurus 
Nobilis, which is still significantly later than this book. Mm. Uh, so it's 1909. Yeah. And although it was some time ago that I read it, I did remember finding it extremely conservative and almost quite dismissive of anything that didn't conform to quite a traditional view of aesthetics. But I'm interested to hear that that evolves and develops. And I, I particularly like the sound of this somatic response to, to art, which also it has its roots much earlier as well, doesn't it? Well, it, well, it does. But I think it's it's something that she did try to de- develop and actually try to develop a a theory of it by mm. looking at uh, think about the beautiful and and um, beauty and ugliness and of course you know we can go back to you know, much earlier kind of aesthetic treatises on the sublime and the beautiful for example you know in Burke's uh, Burke's work and we can look at Kant we can th- we can think of lots of people who are kind of writing about aesthetics but I think this idea of a, of a psychological aesthetics is fascinating because of course mm. it's emerging at a point where psychology is also becoming more important as a sort of discipline isn't it mm. You know, in the in the early twentieth century, so so I think she is at the forefront of a certain kind of experimentation, which does need more attention. And as I say, it is starting to get that attention. But I, I think there's more to be to be said and more more exploration to be done, really. I was wondering if you had a favourite story in this collection. Oh, definitely A Wicked Voice, partly because I I love Venice and I remember having this particular uh, story in my mind when I I first visited um, Venice, but also because I just think it works on so many levels. I think it's the the sexual ambiguity that's really fascinating, the unspoken sort of figure of the uh, castrato, the, the way that the leitmotif works throughout the text those moments of repetition and language that kind of invokes the senses and just the the beauty of the of the tale as a whole and the fact that it is inspired by this experience this personal experience you know in the 1870s with John Singer Sargent just seeing this image this painting of Farinelli that then seems so sort of mysterious so uh, intriguing that years later it leads her to write two stories based on 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 it yeah it's certainly the most complex of the the tales in here i think it's the story to me which seemed to have the greatest sophistication and 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 depth maybe but i really loved dianea as well yes it's we we haven't had time to talk about dianea but um but i i recommend that people read it because it it again it's intriguing on a number of levels isn't it it's um both in terms of this i suppose the goddess demon very much drawing on on heine's gods in exile and that idea that you know once christianity comes in that the pagan gods have to uh, roam the land in in lowly guises um as peasants and um sort of traipsing through the land trying to cause trouble and 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 havoc among the mortals so there's that element to it but it's also just a very beautiful it's very beautifully written as well isn't it yeah i think for me more than anything with that story it's the evocation of place that really works of all these moments where lee's style sort of soars to this very high poetic mode i think this story does it most successfully this the descriptions of landscape are absolutely wonderful so are there are there other texts by vernon lee that people should be looking out for or that you think deserve more attention well i think if, if you're if you're interested in supernatural fiction then certainly i would 
uh, make sure that you had a look at Four Morris, Five Unlikely Tales, and uh, also Pope Jacinth and other fantastic stories, because I think those two contain a number of short stories that would be really interesting to to readers of uh, of hauntings. But also, I quite like, uh, well, one of my favourite stories is uh, Lady Tal in Vanitas Polite Stories, which is actually not a supernatural story at all, but it's um, it's very much a, takes a poke at uh, Henry James and has this kind of wonderful woman writer who really is quite dismissive of Gervais Marion, who's a, a character based on James. And it's actually very funny. And I think that sometimes that's something that that can be forgotten that that Vernon Lee, you know, can be funny too. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, amidst all this kind of high aesthetic style, and I suppose the other the other thing I would recommend would be um, her novel Miss Brown, which um, says kind of satirical take on the aesthetic circles of the 1880s but it's also a fascinating novel and particularly kind of in the figure of Anne Brown who's very much a, in the style of a Pirafelite model perhaps somebody like Jane Morris but who kind of fights against that who wants to make make a difference and I won't uh, spoil the ending but I, I definitely think it's a it's a text worth worth a read but um, I, I could give you long lists of things that I'd like people to, <laughs> to, be, to read by Vernon Lee sure I'll, I'll stop there <laughs> okay. so thank you so much for for joining us and just as a final question where can people find access to your work and see what you've written or follow you on social media um Social media, um, I'm uh, at Petris, P-P-T-R-I-S-S. And my work's available on, on Google Books. You can probably find quite a, quite, particularly Art and Transitional Objects in Vernon Lee's Supernatural Tales. You want to take a look at that. But also I think it's uh, worth saying that a lot of her material is now available on uh, through archive.org, her primary material, if people want to access it. Um, uh, but of course if you want an annotated version then do take a look at uh, Hauntings and Other Fantastic Tales on Broadview, Broadview Press um, edited by Catherine Maxwell and myself um, as I think that will give you a bit of extra information on each of the stories um, and has a lot of additional material which provides some context for these tales as well. Yeah let me just second that that recommendation because this was such a wonderful experience to read with all these detailed annotations and the appendices which are extremely helpful in terms of finding out what informs these stories so go out and get the broad view edition so patricia pullum thank you so much for joining us thank you sam thanks been a pleasure We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Sherd's Podcast. If you have any questions or comments about our conversation, please write to us at sherdspodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Sherd's Podcast. And if you like the show and you want to support us, please leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time when we'll be discussing The Birds by Tarje Vesas. <laughs>